organic free-range HTML. Wild freshwater CSS. And 21-day matured JavaScript. This is not just a podcast. This is Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we ask how do you go from running a creative studio to designing NFTs? Vidley talks to artist Yi Ying Lu to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In What Makes a Great Toggle Button, Edward Curick points out that the problem of how to design an effective toggle button that shows the selected option clearly is a long-term open question amongst UI and UX designers. In this second part of his series on the topic, Edward explains the complex list of visual cues used by toggle buttons to communicate which of their options is active. Shane Hudson looks at how to improve and measure your progress learning web design. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the number of things you need to learn? Shane looks at how article sponsor UXL eases this transition and approaches actively learning new skills to take our careers to the next level. In Useful JavaScript Data Grid Libraries, Zora Cooper provides a rundown of some popular data grid libraries that would be a great addition to any data-heavy application and shares recommendations on what factors to consider when choosing a suitable data grid library. In the second part of Databases for Front-End Developers, The Concepts Under the Hood, Attila Fasina explores the concepts to equip you to have your own opinions about which kinds of database suit your specific needs. And Mike Herschel talks us through the accessibility and usability journey of Drupal's primary navigation. A website's primary navigation is critical to its usability and accessibility. However, navigation systems are deceptively complicated. With version 9.4, Drupal has a brand new default theme called Olivero. Being the default, its navigation system will be used by hundreds of millions, if not billions of users throughout its lifetime. In this article, Mike walks us through the journey of how the team worked to make sure Olivero's navigation would be usable, accessible, robust, and beautiful. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's an artist, entrepreneur, and educator. She grew up in Shanghai, China, and was educated in Sydney, Australia, and also London, UK. She's currently based in San Francisco as the founder and creative director of her bilingual creative and innovation studio. She's incredibly kind, friendly, optimistic, and enthusiastic, which is not very surprising, given that her name, translated from Chinese, means happy creative land. And you have to smile to pronounce it right. Now, most recently, she's become an NFT artist and she leads a design clinic program to increase people's mental health. So we know she's a fantastic artist and designer, but did you know that she loves dumplings so much that she even went all the way to design the dumpling emoji, which you probably will be able to find on your mobile phone today. My smashing friends, please welcome Yi Ying Lu. Hello, Yi Ying. 
How are you doing today? I am smashing, my friend. <laughs> oh, wow. This sounds very exciting indeed. Well, you're smiling now. When I think of you, I always think of you smiling. And when I see you, I always feel like you are the center of happiness and optimism in the entire universe. Now, <laughs> where does it come from? Can you share with us a little bit of your story? Like, where, like what, what are some of the most important things in your life that define who you really are today? Thank you so much for the amazing question. And uh, I have to say, my name came really from my father and my grandfather, because my father initially named me Yanying, which means pretty and, and creative in Chinese. And then my grandfather, after the name has been registered uh, already in the police office, he waited for a few months to come back to my dad. He goes, well, um, we know she's a girl. And the name uh, uh, actually Yan uh, in Chinese is, is pretty. And it has like a, a female radical. And, and he said, I want to change the female radical to the heart radical because uh, we want to focus on the heart and the happiness. You know, we already know she's a female. We want to make sure that she is happy. We don't want to only focus on the external, which is the pretty. We want to focus on the internal, which is the happiness. So I'm incredibly thankful for my grandfather who gave me happy and creative. Um, and this is kind of my life mission. I hope that, you know, I'll carry on grandfather's blessing and my father's blessing and bring more happiness and creative creativity to everyone in the world. Yeah. And I think that you're doing that really well, actually, given all the work that you're doing. I mean, every time I look at the uh, work that you've been producing, be it on Instagram, LinkedIn, anywhere, really, it's always so happy and it always <laughs> comes back down. Like, you remember, I mean, what was it, 2010 or 11, when we were working on a Smashing Book 2 illustrations? Oh, yes. And all the animals, <laughs> so beautiful, so happy, like all of them so happy. Uh, it's unbelievable. So would you say that this happiness kind of or bringing happiness into the world, like uh, what is really also coming from your name, is this is really uh, the ultimate thing that defines your artwork? Because everything has to be kind of pushing for this positivity in the world. I think it's about this curiosity and it is about, it's coming from this innate, almost like childlike stage and a lot of time when I create, I don't know what it's going to come out, <laughs> especially when I create, you know, if you remember when we work, collaborate on the Smashing Book 2, which is around 2010, uh, when I get the brief from you, I really had no idea uh, what exactly. No, neither did I, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what we were going to end up with. Right. And, and there is this interesting sort of um, unknown it's literally a destination unknown and you're working on something. You have no idea how this is going to come out. Um, but if you have this innate uh, desire of communicate and the innate uh, interest and, and curiosity to see what you're going to be coming up with, um, it's exciting. It is very, I would say it is a very um, powerful way of finding the internal state that you want to be. And so to me, every single time when I create something, it always comes out very fun. And I think that's kind of the thing that we're all searching for, which is something I, um, um, I'm always very interested to search for the fun in the functionality, because a lot of times we write a book, it's very functional. And a lot of time, especially, I think uh, a lot of the smashing books are very wonderful tutorials 
and teach people how to do things. And it's very functional. And to me, my interest is finding out the fun or highlighting the fun in the word functional. Because if you look at the word function, it has fun in it. It's just a lot of times people don't necessarily get the chance to experience it. And so to me, um, this sort of light heart joy is something I want to highlight. And I think that visual art has this way of um, make that immediate emotional response. And if the work that I do could help people to um, be in that state, I think it's my ultimate joy too. Because when I'm creating it, I'm having a lot of fun. And it's just such a blessing for people to experience the fun while I'm creating when they are looking at the work. So that's in a way is my way of communicating people without necessarily saying the words. Um, But the visual kind of is the medium of the message. Right. And it's interesting that you're saying that a word create. I mean, every time I think about the work that you're doing, it's always... There's this creative create part, if I, if, if you know what I mean. It's like some, sometimes you would go ahead and you would create something, um, basically as a, you know, as a, um, I don't know, just I don't, a to-do list, those kind of things. Right? And sometimes <laughs> you create something that you bring out into the world to share with other people, right? Yeah. And so, um, I know that in my experience, that is, there are people who are really afraid of creativity as a, as a thing. They might think that they're not creative. They might think that they're engineers. They might think that they are uh, kind of doing their own thing and they're very focused on that thing, but there is not really creativity. So when you give them a pencil and a you know blank sheet of paper, they don't even know what to do. And I know that you had this uh, really interesting project, um, a big drawing festival that you organized uh, back in the day. Was it during pandemic or just before the pandemic, I believe? It was right before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic. So where you really brought everyone in to be creative. And how do you feel about this? Do you feel like everybody is creative by default or? Absolutely. Um, I, I don't like, honestly, I think uh, everybody is creative. Um, the reason why I'm saying it is every day when you wake up, you don't know what the day is going to end up like every year when you start a new year, you don't know what the year is going to be like. You're literally creating that year or creating that day. Every day you're improvising without knowing or without really focusing on the fact that you're improvising. You don't know who you're going to be meeting on the street. You don't know what kind of conversation you're going to be having on the email or the phone call. You are literally creating your life every single second and millisecond. And so we are innately our own author or creative director or <laughs> actress, actor um, of our own film or movie, if, if you, whichever way you wanted to, to call that, but, um, or TV show or soap opera. <laughs> but, but the way that I look at it, you know, when you say engineers and, you know, accountants or lawyers, um, I got to be honest with you, I work with all of the different professions. I think that a lot of times when you give a creative pump for people that, conventionally don't consider themselves as creative, they ended up coming up with some of the most interesting um, drawings and interesting storytellings because it's actually the part of the brain that don't necessarily have the chance to be activated or or even expressed. I think that was probably the more um, appropriate word for that. I think everybody have their creative expression. Um, And I'm very, very interested to 
facilitate that, not only facilitate that for myself, but for others. Uh, well, maybe looking back a little bit into your background and where you were born and you know, your, your travels and your journey until you actually ended up in San Francisco. I'm wondering now, uh, looking back at your life, do you think that um, your travels and you moving places and you now running a cross-disciplinary and kind of multilingual team now as well um, in your design work, do you feel like this way of you know, learning Chinese and then being in Australia and then being in the UK and then now being in San Francisco that actually has defined, significantly defined the way you design, the way you work, the way you think. Um, do you think that this is a very significant attribute of um, the work that you, you're doing or is it just a part of what you're creating? That is a great question. That is a great question. I think it definitely influenced me. I'm not sure if I'm being defined already. <laughs> I think um, everybody in their life, they're defining themselves every day. Um, and I think that to me, I think everywhere I go, I live or I have been to, the people that I've met, uh, the book I have read, the food that I have eaten, the movies I've seen um, or film that I have seen um, absolutely influenced me and shaped me um, and shaped my way of thinking um, in very important ways. Um, and I think that living, being able to live and travel to different places of the world is helping me to see the diversity of people, but in the same time, seeing the unity of people. Because the more places I've traveled, obviously, it's so wonderful to experience the world uh, in different cultures and food and language. But I really started to see the commonality of people, you know, the, the thing that we all have in common. And that's something I think um, is the message that I would love to kind of express through my art, which is the diversity and the unity is seemingly like a two opposite idea, but I'm always interested in sort of finding a way to tell these two seemingly polarized idea into a uniformed communication. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you're saying that because often when we travel to places, when we talk to people in other regions, we always think about what is so unique or special about that particular place and what is the, you know, the food you need to taste and the music you need to listen to and the, where do people gather. And we kind of try to focus on differences and how different certain places or certain cultures, certain people are. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there is quite a lot of I mean, unity, as you're saying, right, where people are people in the end, and it doesn't really matter that much where they're coming from, but they will have certain uh, kind of cultural uh, differences, obviously, and interests and things like that. But in the end, kind of focusing on that thing that unites us all is actually quite significant. And I think that one really symbolic almost um, thing from your work that defines it for me is your research, the incredible research that you have done on dumplings. <laughs> and at this point, I have to ask you to tell that story because how does one even become a designer of a dumpling emoji that is now available on billions of smartphones on the planet? And, you know, maybe you can also share a bit of research that you did into all the dumplings around the world. <laughs> Thank you, Willie. Yeah, this is such a fun project. I, uh, I'm always uh, a, a very happy to share the story. Um, it sort of went back to 2015, um, which is 
almost seven years ago, I initially uh, moved from Sydney, Australia to San Francisco. And my good friend, Jenny A. Lee, who used to be a journalist of New York Times, at the time she moved to San Francisco around the same time I was relocating. And so as you know, Asian Americans, <laughs> we wanted to uh, unite with each other uh, and with sharing dumplings. And she sent me a photo of uh, a dumpling uh, pot sticker uh, sort of in the bowl. And I wanted to express my excitement and sending a dumpling emoji, only find out that there was no dumpling emoji on the iPhone. And I said, I'm surprised that they don't have a dumpling emoji. And she goes, oh, good point. And I was like, okay, well, that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and, and so for me, I, I always like to see what I can do. You know, when there's a problem, I want to find a solution. So this happened to be something I can do something about. So I thought, well, I'm a designer. I have imagination. And why don't I do something about it? So I went back to my table and I kind of started to just create the kind of very first version of the dumpling emoji. I call it the bling bling dumpling because I made it as an animated GIF and it has like heart eyes and it sort of blings. So I sent it over to Jenny with that sort of half moon shaped dumpling. And she goes, did you make it? I said, yeah. And she said, we should publish this. And later on, we went to the dumpling party and there was people from around the world in the party. And everybody was kind of sharing their own dumpling from their you know, respective countries they're coming from. And so, so it was a dumpling party then? Yes, we had a dumpling party. We had there are dumpling parties around the world? Yeah, well, we had I a, should go. We should do a dumpling party around the world. We, we had a dumpling party at Jenny's house. We had folks from different parts of the world coming right. to the party. And we learned like Georgia have kinkali, Japan has gyoza, Italy have ravioli, you know, Polish people have pierogi, empanadas, crepe legs, momos. Yeah, I have done a lot of research with my folks. And so I learned all these dumplings. I'm like, wait a minute. This is actually a universal food. It's not just the Asian cuisine. It's actually a very international cuisine. And so um, then Jenny did more research and find out that Unico Consortium, which is a nonprofit organization that's based in the Bay Area, uh, in fact, uh, is responsible for all the emojis on our keyboards. And so we ended up went to the Unico Consortium for their technical meeting <laughs> with all the uh, all the uh, you know different uh, folks who runs the, uh, the 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 organization. We proposed the dumpling, the chopstick, the fortune cookie, the takeout box um, in person. And they were approved uh, in early uh, 2016. So it takes about three months uh, for us to go to the meeting uh, from initial day. I remember it because it's the very auspicious day. It's the August 8th. And so it takes about three months. And then take about two years for all the vendors like Apple, Google, Samsung, Facebook, and Twitter, et cetera, having the actual emoji design in their own style based on the original design that I did. And it was eventually um, available on billions of keyboards. Um, and the fun story is we also submitted um, the boba tea emoji in 2015, but it was rejected back then. That's another story. But then like five years later, they were finally available on people's phone during the pandemic on, in 2020, thanks to three data scientists who were able to prove 
the um, the number of the users. Uh, Timothy, um, Sujay, and Ranjita, they were amazing. They wrote like the important part, which is the data part, um, to prove the importance of the usage of boba. So that ended up having the boba tea emoji also available. So I designed six emoji altogether so far. Uh, the dumpling, chopstick, fortune cookie, takeout box, boba tea, and the peacock. That's another story we can share. Oh, right. The peacock. Yeah. <laughs> so any, anything else we should be expecting coming anytime soon? Uh, any other right, now, uh, right now, it's still sort of in the cooking. We don't know yet. So I'll definitely keep you posted. Um, there's always a lot of exciting things, you know, in the making. So I will be able to share when the time is right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, also, of course, uh, I have to mention that just when you look at your you know, CV and all the work that you've been doing. And I did so much work throughout the years. Uh, you've been featured on New York Times and Forbes, Bloomberg, Fast Company, Time, White Magazine, CNN, BBC, and the list goes on and on. Now, how did that happen? I mean, what do you think was kind of one of the most significant things in your career that enabled all these incredible projects? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think that I'm incredibly thankful for the people that I have worked with and a lot of times I think I look back some of the most sort of known work or being celebrated work. It wasn't designed necessarily for the corporate um, alone. A lot of times the work that I did um, and eventually was being used or celebrated or known by many, many people was essentially a personal work. A lot of the work, for example, whether it's the dumpling emoji, the boba tea emoji, or the um, the, the Twitter whale, the whale that eventually become Twitter, um, uh, become Twitter's, um, arrow page or the Twitter's overcapacity page, um, which is around 2008 to 2013. And it was literally seen by millions of people and also remixed by a lot of people online, um, which I believe is really the power of community, but the essence of the work that really, I think I'm most proud of a lot of times are my personal, uh, art piece in the first place. So the whale that eventually become the Twitter fail whale was not designed for Twitter. It wasn't commissioned by Twitter. It was a personal piece that I created when I just, uh, finished my exchange study in London and went back to Sydney, New South Wales, pun not intended. I created the whale initially as a birthday e-card that I wanted to send out to my friends or families in Shanghai and, and London because I met so many classmates in London. They were all graduating a little bit earlier than Australia. And so I wanted to express the fact that I couldn't go to your um, graduation ceremony or birthday party. My wish for you is so big, just like this gigantic whale. Um, naturally in the, you know, 3D world, the whale cannot fly, <laughs> but I have these little birds carry this big, heavy wish across the ocean for you. So here the whale was symbolized for the heavy, gigantic wish um, that I have for friends and family overseas. But it was just so happened that, you know, there was this teeny tiny little startup in San Francisco called Twitter and the co-founder Biz found the image online and licensed it. And that rest is history. But I think there is this interesting connection where even though biz look at the whale and thinking 
of, you know, the, the, the interesting part is he interpret the whale as the big scalability issue where the Twitter employees, which are the birds worked really hard on. Um, it was this sort of desire of bringing user happiness, which was the reason why he chose the image in the first place. I think, uh, I heard that from the N- NPR radio when he mentioned it was it was whimsical and it brings the user joy, even though it was a pretty frustrating um, situation. And I think that's what art does. You know, a lot of times in our real life, there's so many different kinds of challenges. But I think art, in a way, is a beacon of light that helps people to release their emotion or help people to connect with that inner light they're searching for, or sometimes there's art is just highlighting their emotion. It could be very sad. It could be very scary, but allow them to connect with that inner self. And I think that's what art does. And that's why we need art in our lives. Right. Well, also talking about art, of course, I have to uh, kind of move to a very interesting area, of course, because most recently you've transitioned into becoming an NFT artist. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, that's a beast of its own, I guess. Uh, and at this point, I do have to ask, because frankly, I mean, I'm just not that much in NFTs. And uh, I know that many, some of the listeners will be surprised, maybe, or maybe not. But what does it even mean to be an NFT artist? Like, what do you need to do to get there? Do you need to have some sort of, I don't know, technical equipment? I, I have no idea. Uh, and, you know, what did you learn throughout that experience? That is a great question. And I love, I always love when, when people are new to the space and curious about the space. And I want to say that, first of all, um, the, the, the important part is the definition of what NFT stands for. Um, a lot of people probably don't, don't really look into it. Um, NFT stands for non-fungible token, right? And non-fungible literally means irreversible irreplaceable, right? It, every single NFT is unique to itself, just like our human experience. And I feel like a lot of times I can see the correlation between each one of us, even the two twins who are identical looking, they could have complete different experience, right? The token, that is a very interesting word because I just had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who is a little bit against NFTs, like, oh, you know, I don't really like the word token. (laughs) And I said, wait a minute, let's look into the etymology of the word token, right? Um, So I think a lot of times people only associate NFT with the monetization value or the, um, you know, the business value or the, uh, you know, the, the currency. But I look into the word token. In fact, the word token comes from Old English, which has Germanic and, and Dutch um, background. It literally comes from the word token, which means to teach. And for, I suddenly get it. The, the idea of creating something that being seen as a token is, is a way or is an opportunity for you to teach the world something, for you to create something for the world to learn. And in that case, what would you like to create for you to teach from yourself? And that's something I want people to keep in mind when you're going to the space not just looking at creating something as a mean of a transaction or just as a mean to um, make financial return is what would you like 
to, pe- to, to create, for people to learn from you, from your experience and, and from your creation. And so that's the fundamental um, ethos that I have when I create any new NFT art or new NFT experience. Um, I think that anything that you create content wise, whether it's a podcast or a conference, I love smashing conference. It is an experience and they can all be seen as a token if that's how we're going to define it. And so that, again, it's very important for me to have the right intention of what I want to put to the world because we have so much content these days and uh, it's, it's, it's very fundamental um, for us to know why we're doing what we do. Um, right. So technical wise, I think that uh, to be able to, to create NFT, obviously you need wallets. You need, um, they, you have, you, you can create something digitally or you can create something physically, um, as a visual art piece, or you could also create music. It can be a music and art combination as a video. So the format of NFT can really be any multimedia, um, content, uh, in, in a sort of, you know, uh, a, a digital file size, that can stored onto the blockchain. And the way that you could start your first NFT, you needed to have a wallet, a digital wallet. So it's almost think of it as your bank account, but on on the blockchain. So that case, you can register for different online wallet. Uh, You can also purchase one of these um, hardware wallets, which also allow you to store the content more safely because you it, the hardware wallet you could actually plug it offline um, and you also use one of the platforms um, on the internet that allow you to upload the work so it's it's quite simple right but basically that means that you would be designing or illustrating your you know creating your artwork and then you would be putting it out there on a one of those platforms which allow you to sell right and essentially that also means that once you have that you would then initiate an auction or how does it work and then you'll be pretty much getting a bitcoin in return is that how it works it, it it's uh it's close um so the currency can be uh, any- close enough that's yes, good for me close enough yeah. you, you did a great job Billy. um the the actual currency can be any currency it doesn't have to be bitcoin it can be ethereum which we call them eth Right, it's a it's a younger uh, cryptocurrency, but it's, it has been around for a while. Um, and majority of the cryptocurrency um, uh, uh, website receive, you know, ETH, and also uh, a lot of them actually receive fiat, which is U.S. dollars. Um, then you have um, websites like, for example, um, uh, we have uh, uh, OpenSea, and there's Foundation, there's Super Rare, there's Maker's Place, there's Nifty Gateway. Each of the platforms would receive currency. Some of them might receive multiple currencies, like OpenSea is more open to all kinds of different currencies. So if you go to their website, you probably will find you know, more than hundreds of different currencies that uh, are acceptable from their website. So that in that way, you could do more sort of transaction if, for example, if you have some of the very smaller known currency, you can use them over there. But then you also have, you know, uh, Makers Place, for example, they allow you to use credit card. 
So you could also use credit card to purchase if you don't have cryptocurrency. Um, but they also allow you to use um, ETH to to purchase. So you can use your cryptocurrency to purchase or or to um, to receive cryptocurrency if you're an artist. Now, going back to the question, is it going to be auction or or some other way? There's all kinds of different ways of, um, again, depends on the platform that allow you to do auction. So I believe that on, on most of the website, they allow you to do auction, but depends again, whether you issue your NFT as a one-on-one piece, which is unique one and only piece, or you decided to do it like a limited edition. Let's say, think of this as a print. Uh, we, back in the days we create prints, right? So one-on-one is basically when they say mint is that you create the digital art or you create the physical art and you scan it and make it digitally, you upload it to the, the um, blockchain through your wallet. This process in the crypto terminology, they call it mint. It's like minting the money. So, so once you mint it, if you only mint one piece and you're not going to mint it again, you call it one-on-one piece. And those pieces are usually, you can either have a set price and you sell this or you can do auction. Um, so you potentially you should be able to do it on most of the website. You can do auction. There's also a lot more um, interesting, fun ways of interacting with your collector. So, for example, you could there. There's also like a very popular way people do limited edition pieces within 24 hours. So they, this is called the open edition. So within 24 hours, they're gonna issue. But we don't know how many pieces are going to be sold out. But within 24 hours, where they people are going to close the mint, meaning that if you are late uh, to the game after 24 hours, you don't get the chance to purchase it. So that's called the open edition. So sometimes open edition could be very interesting because it depends on how many people are going to participate in the sale. Uh, you could sell more, you could sell less, but then... Depends on how many pieces are being sold. There's also this scarcity um, interest uh, from the from the collector because some of the collectors might wanted to participate into um, you know these open edition, but they might want to have something pretty rare. So I did this really interesting sort of uh, a chance based. Um, uh, uh, almost like a chance-based sale on um, Maker's Place, which is something kind of hard to do on other platforms because a lot of times other platforms will sell the piece right away. What you see is what you get, or they have this thing called mystery box. Um, you know, you don't know what you get. You purchase it and you open it and that's it. Um, but what I did with Maker's Place, we did a chance-based um, sale, which is very exciting. So we had five different designs and each of the design have different percentage of uh, being able, people being able to purchase, but they don't know what they're going to get. So they might get, you know, the unicorn, which is very rare. There's only, you know, less than 10% chance you'll be able to get it. Or you can also get, you know, this particular piece um, that's a, you know, this this new mythical beast that only have 4% chance of winning. So it gets very interesting because um, you make the whole open edition process become also a chance-based game um, that people are very excited to participate. And they also ended up walking away with a piece of art they like, because usually I have 
less than six designs. Um, and it's always exciting to see what people ended up getting. So that's kind of like the way that I um, kind of experiment with different platforms. Right. And would you say that um, this is actually worth it for designers, for example, or illustrators or artists? So you might have some people listening in now uh, thinking, okay, well, well, I've been designing digital art now forever, mm-hmm. right? Is it something for me to try out? Because we all, of course, always hear about those stories about, you know, maybe one particular artifact being sold for a I don't know, a million or two or so. Uh, are those really edge cases and is it really hard to get to any level of success? Or would you say that there are many artists trying, there are obviously many artists failing and some succeeding? Yeah. Where would you say we currently are in this space? This is a very great question. And to me, I'm still in like the non-fungible token space is relatively new and I'm still experiment. And I think the most important thing, this is just a personal experience that I like to share with the world that by no mean, um, I think that, you know, doing this is the only way of achieve success or happiness or, uh, whatever you are searching for in your life. I think that by participating in this, um, interesting new piece of technology, I'm able to find something and create something, a new experience that otherwise I wouldn't have the opportunity to do. And to me, this is as exciting as really, if you remember, I wrote an email to you when um, we created the Smashing Magazine book two together in 2010. And in 2017, you were leading the Smashing Conference in New York. And I wrote an email to you after seven years, even though we've never met. Right. I wrote an email to you. I said, hey, Billy, welcome to town. I would love to come and see you, but I also become a speaker now. I would love to speak at Smashing Conference if there is a chance and if the topic matches. And you ended up giving me this opportunity to speak in New York. And it also really helped me to gain a lot more audience And I had such a smashing time and I enjoyed it so much. And organically, I had so many more opportunities to speak. And to that, I'm incredibly thankful. But I also think that I gave myself a chance. I reached out to you because I just want to create this opportunity for myself. And similarly, you know, giving yourself a chance to experiment with a new piece of technology currently. Um, sure, there are a lot of people are criticizing um, the, the, the current landscapes and some of the existing projects. But please, before you criticize anything, try it yourself and see if you can make a difference. And that's something I want to be able to do. Um, I think that the the biggest desire I have with cryptocurrency is being able to create something new and potentially use it as a case study to teach people, again, going back to the token, to teach people the technology itself. There's nothing wrong with technology, just like there is so many potential with social media. And going back to people say money is evil. Money is a energy. Money is neutral. In fact, there is so much abundance that we can create if we have the right intention. 
And also if we do it with the right people who also have the same goal and mission. And so going back to, again, your question on, you know, whether or not um, the, the, the space, there's a lot of criticism. There's also a lot of projects, unfortunately failed, um, that stem back to the innate difference between web three and web two, because, you know, in web three, because it's cryptic, right. A lot of times people don't really know, um, the, 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 the early days, crypto artists, they're anonymous, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing NFT, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself a crypto artist per se, because people know who I am and I am relatively public. Um, people know my real name. And there's also obviously a lot of trust you have to establish with your community. And that's also something I'm very excited about is that when you are creating something from the identity, who you are, um, and, and the, the community knows you and vice versa, you wanted to create something that people could treasure. And the unfortunately, a lot of the, the scams are coming from um, there is this uh, trust that was being established. People wanted to purchase their art piece from this particular NFT project. And yet um, later on, there was disappointment because the, you know, the crypto artist or the, the, the um, project failed uh, because it's a scam because the foundation was shaky. There was no mutual transparency over there. And so that's something that I think that, you know, there's going to be a lot more um, experiment and there's also going to be a lot more trial and fail um, trying and, and, and um, how would I put this? Um, Sorry, I'm going off the topic, but that's kind of what I'm trying to say. That's okay. Um, that's okay. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that give yourself an opportunity. Um, if there is a new piece of technology that existing, sure, there will be a lot of pros and cons, but really trying your, try it yourself and, and you might create something completely new. Um, that would be my message. Right. Well, uh, at this point, I'm just really have to ask that one question that probably is somewhere out there in the dark corners of the web. Because now that I'm looking at all the work that you're doing, not to mention, of course, the, your studio, not to mention, of course, all the incredible nonprofit work that you're doing as well from Asian Art Museum and Women Talk Design, the Kids and Art Foundation, San Francisco Zoo, and, and so many others. And you're also a San Francisco Arts Commissioner. I mean... How does it all work? Where do you even find time to, for all of this? Do you even sleep at night? <laughs> um, how does it work, Ying? Tell us, what is the secret to your productivity? I, Thankfully, I think uh, I have been always doing the things I love. Um, so I've been always doing the work I enjoy with the people that really have been supportive and with the community, like Smashing Community and yourself, the people that I really have so much gratitude and also um, had so much fun working with. Um, and it's always helpful when you work with people that 
you enjoy working with and also learning from them. I've learned so much from the Smashing community, the speakers, uh, yourself, and also the community. I always enjoyed meeting all the Smashing attendees offline and uh, really appreciate the time that we spend in different parts of the world, whether it's Toronto, Fiborg, <laughs> um, here in San Francisco, New York. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to um, meet more folks uh, now that the COVID-19 is, is uh, calming down a little bit, uh, travel uh, reopened. It To me, it's something to look forward to. Um, I always, you know, doing something that potentially could look forward to. Going back to your question about being a San Francisco Arts Commissioner, I am very thankful for the mayor of San Francisco, Lyndon Breed, um, uh, appointed me to be the Arts Commissioner. And together with 14 other Arts Commissioners, we work uh, with the city of San Francisco. Um, and it's actually a very wonderful community that works to serve the larger community. In this case, um, you know, we work with the artists uh, in the Bay Area for art you see in the San Francisco uh, International Airport, SFO, um, you know, whether it's the murals outside of the zoo or the uh, park uh, that's outside of, uh, uh, that's in, within the San Francisco uh, Chinatown. Um, it's a, a very big honor to be able to uh, help the community offline because I am very passionate about the online community, but I think that we live in a three-dimensional world, uh, in a physical world. And so uh, a lot of times I do think that being able to also contribute to people's well-being and happiness in the physical world is something that I'm very um, just very happy to um, be part of. Right. Uh, also, you just mentioned COVID, of course. I'm, I'm wondering at this point, for all of us, I think, and for everybody who I've been interviewing and for myself as well, uh, COVID had a tremendous impact on the life um, habits, you know, the views on things, relationships, and so many other things. Uh, what was it for you? Like, did you learn something? Uh, did you learn something about yourself, about art, about anything else? What was it? Did it motivate you to do something? How did it change your life? Thank you for the question. Yeah, it was very, it was a very, um, I would say, uh, you know, the entire pandemic has been a very challenging and yet um, I see it as a opportunity to connect with myself, but also connecting with my community. Because during COVID-19, um, especially 2020 and 2021, I was in San Francisco And I have not still until now, I haven't seen my parents for almost four years. My parents are still in Sydney, Australia. So, and my family, my, you know, relatives, um, at the time, my grandmother, uh, is in Shanghai. So I haven't seen my, uh, my immediate family for at least more than three years, three and a half years. And so I think that, you know, it's a very, it's a very isolated, um, situation, And the only way that kept me going and also kept me um, stay at float uh, is creativity and community. Uh, really, truly. I was very fortunate to um, be able to get a lot of support from different sources, 
One of them was Adobe. Uh, Adobe had a Adobe Creative Files. So I was very fortunate to receive it. And I created um, this uh, project, which you can see uh, on the back. Um, I was very passionate about biological conservation uh, for the endangered species. But I was also very interested in sort of creating something for um, for children. So I've been always wanting to write a children's book. So during the pandemic, I was working on this project called The Very Hungry Red Panda <laughs> because um, me, myself, I'm from Asia. Red Panda was also from Asia. And most people don't know the cute red panda. Uh, by the way, fun fact, if you use Firefox, Mozilla, the Firefox is actually not a fox. Firefox is actually a nickname for, for red panda. So that's... Wow, uh, this is shocking. <laughs> I know. It's not a fox. It's a red panda. Um, so... I was very interested in kind of showcasing, you know, the beauty and the nature of Asia. And it was also during the, uh, unfortunately, I think the pandemic was also um, really kind of showed a lot of the issues in the world. And I wanted to also find a way to shed some lights on the, um, you know, on these issues, but in a, in a more um, uplifting way. What I'm interested in doing is, is using art as a vehicle to advocate for diversity, for inclusion. And how does that look like when we bring people together? And I think that one of the metaphor I was using, which is, you know, what if we uh, create these um, stories that can bring people and children from around the world together to appreciate each other. So the children's book, the ethos of the children's book, which is the very hungry red panda, was initially coming from the red panda creation. I created the red panda was during an Airbnb Asian night market that was before COVID in 2019, supported by all the uh, the folks in, in Airbnb, it's all volunteer work from the employees at Airbnb. So they wanted to create this amazing um, called uh, night market for the local mom and pop shops and for the local performers, for the local hosts uh, who uh, AAPI heritage. It was during the AAPI um, Heritage Month, which means Asian American uh, Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So they bring all the people together, but the attendees are people from all kinds of genders, all kinds of ethnicity, and people are able to come over and, you know, enjoy the food um, from Asian Pacific Islander heritage. And at the time, um, the you know, they didn't have anyone to do the branding creative campaign work. Basically, you know, it was two weeks before that market uh, opening <laughs> and they couldn't find anybody to do the, the design volunteer work. And uh, my friend Mabel at the time, she was the, um, the global lead and she contacted me. She said, can you help out? So I said, okay, I would love to help out in any way I can for, for the community. So I created the Red Panda initially for that event as my contribution to my community. And um, because Red Panda is endangered, just like the artists and uh, all the small businesses in the Bay Area. And so we need to kind of take care of them and protect them. And the, in the reality is the um, Red Panda actually was less than 10,000 in the world on the earth. Uh, most people don't know about. They're really cute, but they're also very endangered. So I was 
very excited to sort of extend the families of the Red Panda. And then 2020 happened and I got this creative found. Um, I wanted to create something to advocate for all endangered animals from around the world, uh, from you know, African animals like the giraffe and the zebra or the polar bear in the North Pole and the whale shark uh, in the, you know, East Asia Ocean and the koalas in Australia or the, the sloth in, in uh, South America. So it's a way for me to, you know, really send my love to um, not only people, but also geographic location around the world. But the, essentially the ending of the story is, it will be a play. Uh, all these animals are actually an animal costume and there will be little kids jumping out of the costume and there will be kids from around the world. So that's the hope of that children's book. Oh, that's that's nice. That's very cute. Uh, I'm wondering at this point, with all the projects that you already had done, uh, is there any dream project that you'd love to work on one day? Like something that you always wanted to do? I don't know, uh, NASA... Um, I have no idea, like anything that you have in your mind that will be eventually you will start work on. <laughs> Great question. I think I am literally just starting working on it. I am, uh, three weeks in on writing a book about creativity, entrepreneurship. Um, really it's a book about happiness and creati creativity. That's my name. And I would love to use this book to bring more happiness and creativity to more people. Um, so I'm incredibly um, excited to start this dream project. And I'm, I haven't shared this with anybody publicly, so I'm sharing it with you here. Well, now you have. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. Uh, now, maybe the final question for you, then Ying, until then we'll wrap up. Uh, looking back at your career and, again, all the incredible things that you have been working on, uh, is there anything you wish you told yourself maybe 10 or 15 years ago when you were just starting out? Yeah. Um, I think that if one thing I think I would like to tell myself, I love this quote from Conan O'Brien, uh, which is, if you work hard and be kind, amazing things going to happen. I think it really helped me through some of the hardest time in my life. And another quote I love is from Joseph Campbell, which is follow your bliss. Um, I think that everybody um, in themselves, they all know what makes them happy, what brings them joy. And that is such a blissful thing to know or to realize. And so I would say, follow your bliss. Follow the things that make your heart sing. That's very nice. Well, if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Ying, you can always find her on Twitter, which she's at Ying Lu, and also on her website, which is surprising, surprising, yingluu.com. <laughs> uh, Ying will also be speaking, I heard, I think in New York at Smashing Con, if I'm not mistaken. So please drop in if you have time. We'd love to see you there as well. Well, thanks for joining us today, Ying. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? Um, I mean, you already shared some. Uh, but anything else that you want to put out there in the world for all the wonderful people listening till the very end yes. of this podcast? Drink a lot of water and, and take deep breath every now and then. <laughs> this is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. 
Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. (laughs) <laughs>